in Genesis chapter 12 is, is where we are at. Let's go to the Lord in prayer, and then we'll dive into this message. God, we come to you today thankful for this opportunity to open your word, to learn from it, um, and to see your plan of salvation worked out in the storyline of Scripture. God, help us to be encouraged today as we walk through this text. And this we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, as many of you know, I recently moved from Decatur, Texas to Red Oak, Texas. And, and Decatur is the county seat. Um, it's a downtown area that is built around the square. And, and the, the courthouse there in the middle of the square is architecturally similar to the courthouse in Waxahachie. In fact, the square looks pretty similar. Waxahachie's courthouse is a little bit bigger. Square may be a little bit bigger, you know, a little bit more going on in, in Waxahachie. But it, it's very similar of a look and feel. And one of the neat things that takes place on the Decatur Square every summer is a thing called Cruise Nights. Old, restored, classic cars line those parking spaces around the square. And, and every so often when I remembered that Cruise Nights was happening, because it only happened during the summer, it only happened one Saturday night out of the month. So if I remembered... Uh, I would go down there with my camera and I would, I would photograph these old restored cards. And looking back through those pictures recently, I'm still impressed with how well these cars were restored. And if you have ever restored an old car yourself, you know that it takes a lot of effort, a lot of money, and a lot of time has to go into that restoration project. It doesn't just happen overnight, nor does it happen without a plan. And just as those owners had a plan to restore the cars they showed off throughout the summer at cruise nights, God has a plan that he is actively working out to restore this broken world. We know that God has a plan because he reveals this plan to us in Scripture. Amen. And what is God's plan to restore this broken world? Well, God's plan of restoration is unlikely and it involves unlikely people. Last week, we ended our trek through the storyline of Scripture with Genesis chapter 11 and, and the Tower of Babel. And there we learned that, that God confused the language of the people in an effort to force them to, to scatter throughout the creation and begin to take the world somewhere. And for several generations, uh, that's exactly what the people did. They scattered, they were, they were fruitful, they multiplied, they filled the earth, they, they settled into their own areas. They pushed back the chaos and they began to create something beautiful, something orderly. They began to function as kings exercising dominion over this world and as priests working it and keeping it. And even though mankind eventually spread out and began to do the things that, that God had purposed for them to do, they still acted as big K kings instead of little K kings. The world in which they lived is still broken it is still messed up. And, it, and at this point in the story, we are, we are left to wonder, how is God going to restore this broken world? And we know it's going to happen because, because he promised to, to set things right in Genesis 3.15 when, when he tells us that the woman's offspring will bruise the head of the serpent. And the serpent in this story is, is representative of, of Satan, which means that God is eventually going to, to destroy Satan. And he's going to do that through the woman's offspring who will receive a mortal wound himself. 
And because he has a plan to restore this world, God continues to forbear against sinful man's rebellion. But, but that, that's all that we know so far as we work through the storyline of Scripture. We don't know the details of how this restoration project is going to take place or, or who the serpent crusher is, is ultimately going to end up being. All we have countered so far in this story is the rebelliousness of man and the promise of God as well as God's gracious forbearance with us. By the end of chapter 11, though, everything changes. Just as the Tower of Babel incident where, where man seeks to make a name for himself, we are introduced to a couple, and this couple was Abram and Sarah. You may know them as, as Abraham. But prior to this part, in this part of the text, his name was Abram. And so I'm going to refer to him as Abram to be faithful with what Scripture is saying. Abram and Sarah, they, they lived in Haran. They were, they were nothing special at all. In fact, they, they were an unlikely couple from which to build a nation because they were an elderly and childless couple. But that should clue you into the fact that, that God is going to use them because, because God has this, this habit of, of using those people who are unlikely. And at the beginning of chapter 12, we see that God does just that. God singles out this unlikely couple. Starting in verse 1, we read, Now the Lord said to Abram, Go to your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation. And I will bless you and I will make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. And so God not only singles out Abram, but, but he asks Abram to do a difficult thing. He asks Abram to leave the place that he has known for his entire life, to leave his entire family, to leave all of his inheritance, and to travel to a country that he knows absolutely nothing about. He doesn't even know where it's at. God just says, begin walking, and I will tell you when you are there. Imagine being in Abram's shoes. I mean, many of you have probably lived in Red Oak your entire life. Most of you have probably lived on the same, same plot of land or in, in the same house the entire time that, that you have lived here in Red Oak. Uh, imagine God coming to you and asking you to leave everything behind, to leave your house, to leave your inheritance, to leave your family, your friends, your career, everything that you know about the best restaurant in town, the best coffee shop in town, everything. The favorite grocery store and all the people that you know there. Leave all of this behind. And he wants you to leave it all behind for an unknown land. One that you have never visited. One that God does not tell you about. He doesn't hand you a pamphlet and say, hey, this is what the land looks like. This is all the things that are, that are happening here in this land. Wouldn't you, wouldn't you want to come with me? There is no real estate agent who is going to take you around and show you so, so you might find your perfect homestead there. You can't take an exploration trip to the land to, to see if you click with the people and, and if this, this is a place that you actually want to move to. No, you have to pack everything up and you have to start traveling until God tells you to stop. Imagine God asking you to do that. That's what God asked Abram to do. That is a, a huge, a huge request. God promises Abram, though, a big reward. 
He promises to make Abram into a great nation, to, to make his name great, to provide protection, and to make him a blessing to this entire world. A big request, but a big reward. And that last promise that Abram is going to be a blessing to this entire earth serves to advance the story because it tells us that, that God plans to use Abram and his family to restore this broken world. We are not told how he is going to do this. We are just told at this point that it's going to happen and it's going to happen through Abram and his family. And while God's promise provides hope that, that this world will be restored, God's decision, I mean, God's decision to use Abram raises a number of questions. Abram and Sarah, they, they don't have a child. It's not like they got like 10 or 20 kids and it's like, man, these people are ripe for building a nation. You know, they're only like 30, 35 years old and you're wondering how do they have 10 or 20 kids? But you know, this, this has happened. They've had triplets and quadruplets and all this stuff throughout the years. And man, they're, they're ripe for building a nation. That's, that's not them. Abram is 75 years old. And I don't know about you, but, but I don't see too many 75 year olds having kids. And Sarah is, is barren. She has never produced a child for him. Not one. And so how in the world is God going to bring about a nation from this couple? How is this nation going to, how are these people going to end up being a blessing to, to the entire world? This leaves us to wonder, has God made a mistake? Is God just setting himself up for a massive failure? I mean, I cannot believe that God does not see what he is doing here. And while that might be our first reaction, we have to remember that, that God chooses Abram for a reason. God chooses Abram to show us that, that he works in unlikely ways. And he works in unlikely ways for a reason. God is not just out to redeem and, and restore the world. He's certainly out to do that. As we're, as we're looking at the storyline of Scripture, we're seeing that that is the purpose and, and that is his, his plan. But he also wants us to see that he is the king and this is his kingdom, that he is in control, that he is the all-sovereign creator and sustainer of this universe. As well as he wants us to see that he is greater and wiser than we could ever be. His plans are grander and more complex than we could ever imagine. He really is capable of doing the impossible. And he wants us to see that so that we would place our faith and so we would place our trust in him and him alone. I don't know about you, but, but it's hard to place our trust and faith in God and God alone. It is our natural bent to want to be in control. Adam and Eve have set us down this path when, 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 they, when they brought the effects of the fall on the whole world. And, and as a result... We want to be the king. We want to rule like it is our own kingdom. We want to determine what is good and what is evil. We want to determine where we are going to go and how we are going to go there. We don't want to depend on or, or submit ourselves to anyone else, let alone God. We want to be in control. We want to be the king. And we want to be in control because we think that being in control is going to make our lives better. But, but controlling our own destiny is not going to make our life better. Listen to what one, how one author puts it. There is a daily struggle in our hearts where we are convinced that if we could just control all the variables of our life, we can make everything come to pass in a way that would serve us the best. It is a lie. It is a lie that goes all the way back to Genesis, all the way back to the very beginning. And after highlighting the lie, he tells us that, that, that we must, 
that we must trust in God. We must believe that he is good and he is for us. For as the author goes on to say, if God's not good and God's not real, when real life comes our way, we cannot possibly get through it. And how true is that? How true is that? Without God, getting through this life is absolutely impossible. Honestly, when I think about those who are not Christians, I don't know how they could get through some of the most difficult things that people face in life. The loss of of a child, the loss of of a business, the loss of your life savings, cancer, all of these different things that we are faced with each and every single day. When tragedy strikes, I don't know how those without God can get through life. But here's the thing, we don't just need God when tragedy strikes. We need him every day, all day. We need him leading and guiding us every single step of the way. And the only way that's going to happen is if we're willing to take our hands off of our life, if we're willing to give up control to the all-sovereign God of this universe, if we're willing to place our absolute trust in him. Admittedly, that's difficult. That is a difficult thing to do and God knows it's difficult for us to give up control and to depend fully on him, which is why I believe that that he works in ways that often confound us. God chose to use Abraham and Sarah not because they were the best choice. I think it's clear that they were not the best choice and said he chose to use them because his power and wisdom, he would show that through this episode through this couple and through the nation that would come from them so that we might then turn to trust in him instead of ourselves. And having chosen Abram, and Abram having agreed to God's demands, leaving his land behind to follow God to this mysterious place that he knew absolutely nothing about, this land that God has promised him, God makes a covenant with Abram. And God's covenant reveals that God's plan of restoration is rooted in an unconditional promise with a conditional time fulfillment. Now we're going to talk about these one at a time. First, we're going to focus on the unconditional aspect of the covenant. In chapter 15, if you turn over there, God comes to Abram in verse 7, and he says this, I am the Lord who brought you out from Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to possess. But he said, O Lord, how am I to know that, that I shall possess it? And he said to him, bring me a heifer three years old, a female goat three years old, a ram three years old, a turtle dove and a young pigeon. And he brought him all these, cut them in half and laid them, laid each half over against the other. And he did not cut the birds in half. And we God asked Abram to do may appear gruesome. It may appear barbaric. We may not understand exactly why they were going about doing this. I mean, couldn't they just get out a pen and paper and sign some contract like we do or sign this covenant like we do today? But this is how people did things back then. They cut animals in two. And after they did, the two people who were entered into the covenant together with one another would, would physically walk through the middle of these animals. As if to say, if I don't uphold my end of the covenant, may what has been done to these animals be be done to me. Gruesome or not, this act was meant to drive home the seriousness of covenants and to sear in your mind what it is that you have agreed to. As well as it left no mystery as what to happen if you broke this covenant. But but here's where things take, take a turn. We're told in verse 12, as the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell on Abram. 
And behold, dreadful and great darkness fell upon him. After which God spoke to Abram, reiterating his promise to give him the land, telling him that what was going to happen to the family that would come after him and when they would inherit the land. He even tells Abram how long he would live. And then in verse 17, he, we, we are told this. When the sun had gone down and it was dark, behold, a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch passed between these pieces. And the smoking fire pot and the flaming torch, it represents God. But, but if you notice, he is the only one who has gone through these animals. And that's out of the ordinary. Usually both parties would, would pass through, not just, not just one party. This tells us, because God is the only one who has passed through these animals, that God is making an unconditional covenant with Abraham. Meaning that, that God would uphold his end of the covenant no matter what. It didn't matter what Abraham did. God would be there for him. He would be for him even when he wasn't for God. And that's an important promise because there is no way that Abraham is ever going to be 100% for God. He was going to mess up at some point. He was going to sin against God. It is inevitable. He is affected by the fall. But you know what? God makes his covenant with him anyways. God knew that Abraham was, was going to grieve him. He knew that he and the nation eventually would, that came from him would, would serve other gods, would repeatedly sin against him, would, would go and praise these other gods when, when good things happened to them, even though God is the one who provided everything for them. God knew all of these things would happen and he pursues a covenant with Abraham anyways. No matter what, God was going to fulfill his promise to Abraham, the one he had chose to covenant with to begin this restoration project. And while God's promise to fulfill his covenant with Abram and, and that promise is unconditional, God's covenant with Abraham is also, has an also has a conditional aspect to it. And so let's look at the conditional aspect of the covenant. The covenant promise is not conditioned on Abram's, the covenant's promise is not conditioned on Abram's obedience. And, and I want to be clear about that. Right? The, the unconditional aspect, I mean. Rather, the, the how and when of when this covenant would be fulfilled is conditioned on obedience. In other words, the timing of God's promise to Abraham is conditioned on obedience. The salvation that everyone longed for only could be brought about by the one who is completely obedient to God's covenant demands. And until the one came, true redemption and salvation could not happen. God required complete obedience of, of Adam, of Noah, of Abram, the nation of Israel, as well as David. But, but I don't think this is really a spoiler alert as you walk through the, the storyline of Scripture. No, none of those people gave complete obedience to the covenant. They all broke the covenant. Not Adam, not, not Noah, not Abram, not Israel, not David, not any of the kings who came after him provided complete obedience to God's covenant demands. And so the search for the serpent-crushing king continues. The seed of the woman who would bring about a blessing to the nation kept going. And it is that search, it is that condition, complete and absolute obedience that drives the biblical narrative forward. And with that, we can say that God's covenant with Abraham is, is both conditional and unconditional. It's unconditional in the sense that God will bring about the promise that he made to Abram. But it is conditional in the sense that the promise will not be realized until the one who can render complete obedience 
comes on the scene. And as you continue through the story of Scripture, you see that God remains faithful to His covenant, which tells us that God's plan of restoration is undeterred by our failures. Not only does He remain faithful to to Abram, but to his family and the nation that ultimately comes from him. Time and time and time again, God upholds his promises despite their disobedience. And time and time again, God will uphold his promise to us as well. When we mess up, when we sin, when we seek to be big K kings, living in accordance to our own definition of what is good, God does not abandon us. He doesn't abandon us not only because of the covenant that he made with Abraham, but also because of the promise he makes through the new covenant. In Jeremiah 31, we read God's promise there. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them and I will write it on their hearts and I will be their God and they shall be my people. No longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother saying, know the Lord. For they shall all know me from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity and I will remember their sin no more. Not only do we learn that that God will make a new covenant with us, but we also learn that, that we will be His people. We will always remain His people because He will forgive our iniquities and He will remember our sins no more. Why can God do this? And I ask that because God is is holy and just, and as a holy and just God, God must punish sin. And we are wicked people who deserve nothing but God's punishment. No one is righteous, no, not one. And so what we deserve is for God to pour his wrath out on us. And if that's what we deserve, then how? How can God forgive us? Well, he can forgive us because of the complete obedience and the sacrifice of the seed that was to come. If you remember back to the beginning of the sermon, I said that the seed that that was coming that would not only deliver a mortal blow to Satan, but but receive one himself. And the blow that the seed receives ends up being a sacrifice delivered on our behalf. The offspring of the woman who we'll look at in detail next week comes and dies for us. And when he does, he absorbs God's wrath and he makes it possible for us for God to forgive us in our sin and to never hold that sin against us anymore. And that tells us then that our relationship with God is not, it is not dependent on us. It is not dependent on our performance or how good we are. It is not thwarted by sin because of God's covenant promise and faithfulness, he will continue to patiently forbear with us, working out his plan of redemption and restoration, even as we rebel against him, seeking his throne as big K kings in his kingdom. God is faithful despite our faults and despite our sin. Our God is is a gracious and merciful God. He is merciful in that he doesn't give us what we deserve, which again is punishment. That's exactly what we deserve. Instead, he gives us what we don't deserve, and that is salvation, a restored relationship with him, access to an everlasting kingdom. That is his grace. It is a gift that he has given us at great cost to himself and no cost to us. You need to understand that 
that we do not deserve this gift. We don't deserve salvation at all. We do not deserve God's grace and God's mercy. That is why it is called grace and mercy. God doesn't give us what we deserve. Instead, He gives us what we don't deserve. And for that, we should praise God because we are a faulty people who sin each and every day against God and one another. But God continues to patiently use us just as he did Abram and his family and his people to extend the kingdom and to extend the message to the world. Our God is a faithful covenant-keeping God in whom we can trust and in whom we can rest. And next week, we're gonna see just how far God is willing to go to fulfill his promise to Abram and to us. But for now, let's take the opportunity. Let's take the opportunity to praise and worship God for his never-ending covenant faithfulness. That is how you can respond today if you are a believer. You can respond by praising and worshiping God, by standing in all of his faithfulness despite our sin, our rebellion, and our desire to be a big K king. And if you are not yet a believer, you're tuning in, you are here today, Now is an opportunity for you to turn and to worship God as well. As we're gonna find out more next week, you can worship God because Jesus has come and Jesus has died on your behalf. He paid the penalty that we deserve, death. And all those who who believe in Jesus as their Lord and as their Savior can experience a covenant relationship with God. They can experience hope. They can experience joy. They can experience eternal life and true restoration. If you've not yet turned to Jesus, now is an opportunity for you to do that today. Today is the day of salvation. Today is the day for you to experience a restored relationship with God. Today is the day for you to turn to Jesus and to believe in him. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. God, we come to you today thankful for the opportunity to gather, to open your word, to see your promise to us, God. Promise of redemption. And to see how you have worked that out in your story the Bible, the scriptures that you have given us, your word to us. God, may we trust in Jesus. May we rest in Jesus. And those who do not believe in Jesus, God, we pray that you might work in their life, that you might call them to yourself so that they might experience the same hope and the same joy and the same salvation that we have experienced, Lord. Cause us to praise you, God. Cause us to be captivated by you as we think more on the gospel this week. And this we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.